I wanted to preach from Philippians 3. So would you turn there with me? This is our hide the word verse for the summer. Philippians chapter 3. I know it's a little weird to just parachute into the middle of a New Testament letter. Normally we start at the beginning and we work to the end. But verses 13 and 14 have been our hide the word memory verse for the last two months. As we've had a car themed summer here, haven't we? Our family Bible week was car themed with the drive theme. And then we had a big car event yesterday. So I thought I'd round off our time together this summer memorizing this passage to preach a little bit on what it means and what it means for us today. Tomorrow, our family is headed on a big trip. We're going to get into our car and we're going to drive to Pittsburgh where we will park and then we're going to get on an airplane for a five-hour flight. Uh, My son Peter calls it getting into a tin can and being thrown across the country. And uh, then we're going to arrive and get picked up at the airport and have an hour and a half drive to Robin's new residence. We're going to wake up in Pennsylvania and we're going to go to sleep in Washington State. And I'm guessing that not a few times tomorrow we're going to be asking the question, are we there yet? That's our first slide this morning. Have you ever heard that question? (laughs) On a road trip? Yep. It normally comes from which seat? The back seat, that's right, and it comes up to the front. Are we there yet? And depending on the patience of the driver, the, often, the answer is often, not yet, little Smurf, right? Or just a little bit longer, or no, and don't ask me again, right? Toby, how many hours or days did your trip from P&G take to get to the States, just to get in country? This time around, I didn't count. <coughs> Sorry. <clears throat> 36 hours. Okay, that makes tomorrow very relative for me. Yeah, yeah. I'll bet you were asking the question, are we there yet? Monday never ended. Yeah. Was it in fact Monday for a really long time? Okay, because you're going the other direction. As the world turned this way, you're going that way. Okay. Well, that's just the question that the Apostle Paul was answering in a spiritual way in this part of the book of Philippians, chapter 3. In the first part of the chapter, verses 1 through 11, Paul gives his testimony and a short statement of the gospel of grace. Paul warns the Philippians about false teachers who would want them to try to believe a false gospel of legalism and works righteousness. That is, putting your confidence in what you do, in your flesh, in your self-efforts, in your own performance. Paul says, instead of being saved by a righteousness like that, we need to be saved by a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. A righteousness that makes it possible to know Christ, which is better than everything. Paul says that the core of Christianity is not putting your faith in your flesh. He says we're to put no confidence in the flesh. It's to put our faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross on our behalf, what we've been singing about this morning. And then because of that faith and because of that righteousness, we're able to consider everything a loss compared to knowing Christ. The power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, knowing Christ. That's our purpose as a church, isn't it? To bring people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ, to know him. That was the whole point of yesterday's event. It's the whole point of this church. It's the whole point. 
This is a powerful passage, Philippians 3. I wish I had time to preach the verses 1 through 11 as well. Just listen to verses 7 and 8. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. It was in one column. He's moved it to the other column. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the, listen to this phrase, surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. Those are powerful words, aren't they? That there would be nothing greater, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's why we're passionate about sharing the gospel at the Good News Cruise, because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So as we come today to verse 12, Paul doesn't, isn't really starting a new thought, okay? This flows out of that. What he has to say now flows right out of what he's been saying so far in chapter 3, and he basically says that as powerful and passionate as his testimony was, from legalistic, pharisaical, Hebrew of Hebrews, to considering all of that rubbish compared to knowing Christ, as powerful and passionate as his testimony was, Paul himself had not yet arrived. So the answer to the question, are we there yet, is for Paul, no. No, I'm not there yet. And so that's our answer too. We are not there. Let me, let me show you how he puts it and what he says to do about it. Let's read chapter 3, verses 12 through 4, 1. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, what's he do? I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward, in Christ Jesus. We should have that memorized by now. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray you'd put a cap on everything we've been learning for the last couple months and help us to press on. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So are we there yet? The answer is what? No. I've only got two points this morning. Very short sermon. I think that Paul's teaching here can be divided up into just two things with one application each. Here's number one. We are not perfect yet. Look at verse 12 again. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. 
So Paul has just given his testimony, and it was passionate and it was powerful. He'd gone from putting his confidence in his law-keeping flesh to considering that as worthless and as dung. That word for rubbish could be translated dung. And desiring to know Christ in the most powerful and intimate way possible. But even the great apostle Paul was not there yet. He had not obtained all this, he says. He has not arrived. Verse 11 talks about attaining to the resurrection from the dead. That hadn't happened yet for Paul. He had not yet been perfected. He was still in process, as we say. And and he says it again in verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Paul is stressing here that he has not yet arrived. He is not perfect. He is being perfected, but he's not yet perfect. In theological terms, we say Paul is fully justified, but he is not fully sanctified because he is not yet fully glorified. So he's not there yet. The great apostle Paul, arguably the most mature Christian to follow Jesus ever, has not yet become perfect. Here's a little test to prove this. Raise your hand in here if you're perfect. You passed. If you raise your hand, you don't belong here. Because this meeting is for non-perfect people. I think that's one of the great things about the Good News Cruise. As we show we're normal people. And we've got people coming onto our campus. They're like, oh, okay, that's a normal person. I can talk to them. And we say we're imperfect people. And you're welcome here. In fact, some, some people think church is like, uh, like a museum. Everything's all kind of perfect and... And we think it's more like a hospital, a clinic, where people come in broken, right? And in fact, the doctors and nurses here are broken, right? Because we're helping one another. Yesterday, Lonnie and I were putting a canopy up together out there. And I know this could be hard to believe, but I, I was having a hard time with the mechanics of it, okay? And, why are you laughing? And... Lonnie says, it is very encouraging to me, Pastor, that you aren't perfect yet. Remember that? And I said, well, I got lots of encouragement for you then, because I am very far from perfect. Paul was very aware of his imperfection. And he made it very clear to the Philippian, his Philippian friends. He says it three times. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained this. Verse 13, or have already been made perfect. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. He's emphasizing I'm not there yet. So what do, you, what, do you, what do you do with that? What do you do with the fact that we're not there yet? One thing we could do is go, ah, right? And just kind of sit back. We could take some comfort in it. If the great apostle Paul didn't reach perfection, it's probably okay that I'm not there yet myself. We can do that. There's something to that that we can take home with us. Especially, we can cut other people slack in our lives, realizing they're not there yet either. Probably your missionary friends need to do that for one another. That'd probably be a good thing for us to do with this truth. But that's not what Paul does with it here, is it? He doesn't say, I'm not there yet. Oh well. Does he? No, what Paul does with it, I think, needs to be our main application this morning. What, we're not perfect yet, so what? What does he do? Press on. Listen to verse 12 again. Not that I've already obtained all this, or I've already been made perfect, so I just give up. No. 
but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. So I just give up. I just sit back. I say, I'm never going to get there, so why try? No, he says, I press on. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That's what we were teaching the kids at Family Bible Week. We're not yet perfect, so we need to press on. Put your pedal to the metal. Now notice who initiates here. It's Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus took hold of me. Why did he take hold of me? To make me like himself. To perfect me. I press on to take hold of that for which he took hold of me. He's done the hard work. He's gone to the cross. I'm called to just live out the implications of that work. Now, Paul never gets the order of this wrong. We often do. We think, oh, I've got to press on to somehow impress God. Right? I've got to press on to get saved. I've got to press on to, to earn my way. Whenever we start thinking, work, 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 then we're thinking, earn, earn, earn. But Paul never does that. Paul always starts with, Christ's work first, he grabs hold of me, and then our work second flows out of that. So we press on, but we do it because he took hold of us. You see that? Notice also that Paul doesn't say, I've not yet arrived, until, and until Christ comes, I will not arrive, therefore I need not do anything. Because that's the other mistake we make. All of a sudden we get an idea about grace. Oh, grace, good. It's a gift. I'm done. Don't need to do anything else. I don't, I don't need to press on. I'll just sit back. That's not how it works. I'll just rest on my haunches and not change. I'll, I'm not going to become like Christ. I'm not going to become conformed to his death. I'll just sit here and wait for Jesus to come get me. Once saved, always saved. So now I can just live like the devil. I'll never be perfect. So why bother? That's the wrong thinking too, isn't it? Paul says, this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. Are you straining? I press on. Now, what is this what's behind in verse 13? What, what's behind Paul now? Well, I think it's the things he used to trust in. The things he lists in verse, verses 4 through 6, all of his spiritual religious pedigree. Paul has put all of that behind him now. This is not talking about let bygones be bygones. This is talking about let flesh confidences be bygones. Let everything I once considered greater than Christ be bygones. Let the rubbish that passed for greatness and significance and meaning and righteousness and fulfillment now be bygones. Let my old way of life be bygones. I leave it behind and now I press on. So here's the application, friends. Are we pressing on? Or are we just sitting there? Are you growing as a Christian? Or are you just waiting for him to come back? Or are you just saying, oh, I did that pray the prayer thing. I'm good. Now I'm just going to do my own thing. We are not yet perfect, but that is no excuse for spiritual laziness. 
Instead, being not yet perfect is a call to the zealous pursuit of that perfection. It is a mark of maturity to realize that you have a long way to go. The most mature people I know have a great sense that they've not yet arrived. But that maturity is only real if it gets us off of our behinds and into the race of following Christ. What are you doing to press on? Are you putting the pedal to the metal? This will cost you. It will mean a sacrifice of time and energy and earthly pleasures. But it's worth it. Paul says, Christ is worth it. The surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You've not yet arrived, but press on. Now, this is for all of us, right? This is not just for super Christians. This is for every Christian. Look at verse 15. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. Everybody. If you are mature, that's a little, there's a little play on words there in the Greek. That's the same word for perfect. So if you're not yet perfect, those of you who are perfect... Those of you who are mature, then this is the way to see yourself. Not yet, but pressing on. And if on some point you think differently, then that too God will make clear to you. If you're immature, then as you press on, you'll begin to see more clearly. Verse 16, only let us live up to what we've already attained. So as much of this as we understand, we're to put into practice. I long to see more spiritual fervor in our whole church family. I want it for myself. I want it for all of us here. We all need to become like Paul. He knew he wasn't there yet, but he was getting there. He was committed. He was pursuing perfection with a passion. He was pressing on. And he calls us to follow him in that. Look at verse 17. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Paul is saying, follow me. And follow men and women like me. Not those that have arrived, but those who are running on the right track. Who are those people in your life? Do you know who is running on the right track so that you can follow them? Because everybody's following somebody, right? You know that, right? Everybody's following somebody. Everybody is following somebody. Who are you following? Paul is saying, follow him as he follows after Christ. He's saying, take note of those who are also following after Christ and follow them. Earlier in Philippians, he gave some good examples in Timothy and Epaphroditus. Look back in chapter 2 for that. But he means more than them. He means whoever is following the pattern of gospel living that Paul set out for them when he was with them. Who are you following? Who's running ahead of you on the race of discipleship and and you are caught in their draft? Right? Right? that's the race car, that's the lead race car, and you're like, I'm going to get in behind them and get caught in their draft. I realized this summer that I still have mentors in the faith that are living. That's really good because sometimes when you reach middle age, many of your mentors are dead or are falling out of the race. I have mentors who have gone before, both in great books and personal relationships. I'm reminded every week of something Blair Murray taught me. And my counseling instructor, David Paulison, who died this last June. But I still have mentors who are still living as well. Some of you are here in this room. And I'm thankful for people like Super Jeff Powell and Greg Strand, who've taken me under their wing and not just encouraged me as a brother, but shown me the way as a Paul to a Timothy. Who are you following? Who's leading you? 
Or maybe a better question is, who are you leading? You can turn verse 17 on its head and realize that everyone is following someone, so that means someone is probably following you. Who's following you? Dads, this is especially one for you. Because whatever you're doing in your Christian life is what you are discipling your kids to do. Whatever they see you doing, that's what they'll probably do unless God intervenes. If you're making Christ your top priority, they will be discipled by that. If you're not, they probably will not. You're a spiritual thermostat in your home. You set the temperature. If you leave the spiritual leadership of your home up to someone else, you're discipling them to advocate spiritual responsibilities as well. Who are you leading? You are what they are becoming. And that's true for church leaders too. This is for all of us, Sunday school teachers, youth group leaders, kids for Christ leaders, link group leaders, deaconesses, facilities team, hospitality team, missions ministry team, elders. You are setting the temperature. Are you following this pattern? Are you pressing on? If somebody peeled back a couple layers in your life, would they say, oh, they're pressing on and they're showing me how to do it? This stuff is caught much more than it's taught. We're not there yet, so we must press on. Everybody's following somebody. And that's why Paul warns them against following those who don't press on. In verse 18, look at verse 18. For as I've often told you before, and I'll say again, even with tears, notice how this chokes him up. Some people think Paul is stoic, like he's all brain and no heart, but he is so passionate. He's crying. The tears are hitting the page as he writes this. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. I believe that Paul is talking about people who think they're Christians, but they don't live like it. They've given lip service to Christ, lip worship to Christ, but they've not trusted in him for their righteousness in such a way that it leads to knowing him and pressing on. They think they're Christians, and this makes Paul cry, but they're really functionally enemies of the cross. They make the cross seem like nothing by the way that they live. Oh, you have a cross? Oh, that's nice. I wear one of those around my neck too. He says, don't follow them. Their destiny is destruction. They're lost. He says, their God is their stomach. That means they're driven by their desires, their lusts, their motives, their their passions are not godly. He says, their glory is in their shame. They claim Christ, but they live shamefully and they glory in it. Look at me. And ultimately, here's where they've gone wrong. Their mind is on earthly things. Their mind is on earthly things. They act and behave and talk and really believe that this world is what's really important. What they don't realize, what they don't believe, what they've only given lip service to is truth number two. We are not home yet. We're not home yet. Their mind is on earthly things and it is their destruction. But we're not home yet, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. We're not home yet. But Jesus is coming soon to take us home and make us like him. How many of us actually act as if our citizenship is in heaven? How do we often think about ourselves? I think a lot of church people in the U.S. think about themselves as Americans first 
and Christian second. Their primary identity is American. Some even make the mistake of thinking that if you are an American, that means you are a Christian, as if the two things are the same. But that's not how it works. Look at how Paul saw himself. Was Paul, where was Paul a citizen of? We know he had a Roman citizenship, right? Earthly speaking, that was his citizenship. He was a Roman citizen. But what does he say in verse 20? He says, our citizenship is in heaven. So if we are Christians, our true citizenship, our deeper, more important citizenship, a citizenship that is, should affect how we view and how we use our American citizenship or whatever citizenship we have. Liz, what are you a citizen of? Australia, right. And how you use that Australian citizenship is, is governed by our common heavenly citizenship, right? We don't pledge allegiance ultimately to the United States of America. We pledge allegiance to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those two things are not the same. Sometimes we can get them confused and then our eyes begin to creep down to looking only at earthly things. But the Bible says that our citizenship is in heaven. Not Rome, not Israel, not the United States of America, not Australia, not ultimately. Our citizenship is in heaven. And that should affect everything we do or say as Christians wherever we are, including here in America. So we are actually on foreign soil where it counts the most. So I think that means we shouldn't get too comfortable here. We're not home yet, so we need to look up. Verse 20. Their mind is on earthly, thing, earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And what do we do about it? We eagerly await a Savior from there, from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. We get our mind off of just earthly things. I think that's one of the great things about the Good News Cruise. The reason we can do that is because we aren't just thinking about here. We're thinking about there and wanting to see our friends be there with us. We orient our lives, not just around now, but on what is coming. And who is coming? A Savior, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control, will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like His glorious body. That becomes our focus. That becomes our lens. I'm reading a book right now called The J-Curve, and it's, it's this idea that we die and we rise with Jesus in everyday life. So it's this, this little death or a bunch of little deaths and we follow him in rising. It's about our union with Christ. It's about a way of seeing everything in life based on what is to come. So that verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. So do you want to stand firm in the Lord? I know you do. Here's how you do it. You eagerly await a Savior from heaven. You have your eyes up. Some people think that you can be too heavenly minded so that you're no earthly good. But Paul says it's actually the opposite. You can be so earthly minded, you're no earthly good. We need to be heavenly minded so we can be earthly good. We orient our lives around the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let me give you an assignment. Today at lunch, when you're eating your uh, Good News Cruise uh, hot dog bun, you're putting whatever inside of it, right? I want you to go around the table and ask these questions. 
Are you pressing on? Ask it around the table. Are you pressing on? Are you pursuing godliness with a passion for Christ? How do you know? Ask the second question. Whom are you following? Who are you following? Who is, who's discipling you? That could be a significant discussion around your t- table today. Who's in the lead? Who's leading you? You can flip it around and say, who are you leading? And number three, are you looking up? Is your mind on earthly things? Or is your God your stomach? Are you eagerly anticipating and living like Jesus is on his way to get you? Or are you acting like this is your home? No, we're not there yet. We're not perfect yet, so we must press on. And we're not home yet, so we must look up. And my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, that is how you can stand firm in the Lord, beloved.